So if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be covering Ephesians chapter 1, and it's going to be verses 3 through verse 6, just four verses. So this is Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. Heavenly Father, we pray that you are blessed by the reading and the study of your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So last week we ended with the good news of Paul that he proclaimed in his introduction, his salutation in the first two verses. And he delivered it with such a tone of praise and worship that really set the course for this rich epistle. And tonight we're going to begin to scale the great peaks of theology around which God was building a new thing that was not revealed in the Old Testament. A mystery that is now revealed by Paul here in Ephesians and other places in the New Testament. A new body of called out believers forming the bride of Christ, the church, consisting of both Jew and Gentile, forming under the stewardship or dispensation of the grace of God. Now at verse 3, Paul moves into the real meat of this letter and he begins by, by, with a blessing of this new body. It's an extraordinary verse. It's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And here Paul launches into one of the most beloved doxologies in Scripture. A doxology is an expression of praise to God, sometimes used in Christian worship. And notice as Paul continues in his praise of God that we bless God. We pronounce him blessed. Here Paul is pouring out his soul in true adoration for God's goodness in action, ascribing to God the honor and praise due to him for the past spiritual blessings which is our election and our predestination, for the present spiritual blessings, which is our adoption and our redemption, and our future spiritual blessings, which is our unification and our inheritance with him. So how do we know that these amazing doctrines of election, predestination, adoption, unification, inheritance, how do we know that's on the mind of Paul when, he's, when, he, when it comes to these blessings? Well, it's because Paul will spend the rest of the chapter extolling these rich blessings from God given to believers. And this is why Paul is blessing God, because he first blessed us. And gratitude is the echo of grace. The Puritan Ralph Venning put it this well, put, put it well. He said, a thankful heart for all God's blessings is the greatest blessing of all blessings. And notice it is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in particular, who is the focus in this verse as well as the next three verses. 
And most commentators agree that within this one sentence that we're looking at, we're starting just part of it, which is 3 through 14. If you've ever studied this, this is the longest sentence in the New Testament. In 3 through 14, there is a Trinitarian framework that is built into it. In our verses tonight, 3 through 6, we see God the Father chiefly described. In verses 7 through 10, we see the Lord Jesus Christ, his work chiefly described. And then we will see 11 through 14, the work of the Holy Spirit chiefly described. And although tonight we're only dealing with the works of God the Father, it can be said that the blessings listed come from God the Father, and those blessings become ours in Jesus Christ, and then they're applied by the Holy Spirit. And it's wonderful, it's absolutely wonderful that these blessings are the work of a triune God. And they were set forth in eternity past in the Godhead. So tonight, we're going to be looking at the works of God the Father. So our first point is the blessings of God's choice. Again, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And first we must say, this is one of the most thrilling verses to the believer marked with the words blessed, blessed, and blessing. We see the Father who has blessed us is in the aorist past tense, and it refers to an occasion when the blessing was first received, or it could be when God brought these blessings to humanity in general. And then we see he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing. That suggests that the Father From the Father comes a continuous flow of blessing. The picture is continuous and total. And as every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, we see we don't lack any spiritual blessings. And it has an unstoppable flow to it. This is our good Father, our Abba Father, opening up the treasury of heaven and continually lavishing it upon us holding nothing back, every spiritual blessing. And you may ask, well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know exactly what that means. But it is wonderful, and it is beyond our imaginations because the emphasis here is on spiritual blessings. It's not on material blessings. You know, we have some idea of what material blessings look like, but the scope of these spiritual blessings is beyond us, and that's validated in 1 Corinthians, which states, things which eye has not seen, an ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that we have never seen something so wonderful. We have never heard of anything so wonderful, and we can't even comprehend with our minds, our finite minds, anything so wonderful. But realize it's only for those who love him who can receive the Spirit of God. And only they can receive these blessings. A couple verses later, in that same 1 Corinthians section, the text answers the question, why have we received the Holy Spirit and the subsequent blessings that the Holy Spirit applies to us? And it reads, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God. Now, we don't know the details, but we do know there's depth to it. It's like an ocean of spiritual blessings that has no bottom. And there's no limit to them that we are receiving and will receive from our Heavenly Father. Every earthly blessing has limits. 
Common grace has limits. Seafood, sunsets, and surf, they have limits. All material blessings have limits. Spiritual blessings have no limits. Now, as we see in verses 4 through 6, as we work through these blessings, that the doctrines presented can be some of the most difficult doctrines to grasp. They are truly repulsive to the natural man. And even to the nominal Christian, they're hard to accept at face value. As Steve Lawson says, these truths are not hard to understand. They're just hard to swallow. And isn't it ironic that the very doctrines that are so repulsive to the natural man and the nominal Christian, Paul is heralding right here that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All these blessings are immediately connected in the next couple of verses with what? Election, predestination, and adoption. Heavy doctrines of salvation, to be sure. But it seems that Paul wants us to see these doctrines as absolute blessings from God. As if to say, embrace them, rejoice over them, and give God the glory for them. Bless Him for blessing us. And that's what he's doing here in verse 3. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And since they are in Christ, can there be a more secure place for this treasure to reside than in the heavenly places in Christ. Our election, predestination, and adoption, our very redemption, our salvation is kept in heaven, in Christ, the most secure place in the universe. Obviously, our being in Christ positionally before God is central to the Pauline doctrine with nine mentions of it in the first chapter of Ephesians and mentioned 164 times in all of Paul's writings. But what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it is only through Christ that God gives us Christ's holiness and sees us as holy positionally. God made us holy in Christ. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, now are you holy. Now are you sanctified in Christ. It's already done. So for all believers, these spiritual blessings in our very lives as followers of Christ are positionally in Christ, sanctified in Christ, set apart in Christ. And it's as if that isn't wonderful enough that God sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness as we are in Christ. It is as if God sees our name written in the very book of life. And then across the ledger, across the page, he counts our blessings. And what does he read? Credited to our account, foreknown, predestined, elected, adopted, glorified. We are in Christ and as such are blessed with these spiritual blessings, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. This is stunning. Do our lives reflect the peace and joy of a people that are in Christ headed for glory? Or are we moping around like a beggar who doesn't know that he's a sole heir of the richest man on the earth. Paul pleads with us in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So are you rejoicing? We have so much to be rejoicing over. So on to point two, the timing of the Father's choice. This is verse four. Just as, in, just as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy 
and blameless before Him in love. In the previous verse, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ blessed us in the heavenly places. Now in verse 4, God the Father elected us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Eternity is in view in both verses. Verse 3 in the heavenly places and verse 4 before the foundation of the world. But before we get to the timing of this election and these blessings secured in the heavenlies, let's look at God's election. John Calvin called election the foundation and first cause of all blessings. So you could say that all these blessings have their source in the electing love of God. In verse 4, it's, it's not unclear. He chose us. Jesus was emphatic about this in the Gospel of John when he said, you did not choose me, I chose you. God chose us, elected us. The word is eklegomai in the Greek. Well, most people don't know about this Greek word, eklegomai, is that it means to choose some out of many. Some out of a larger mass. And what it really means is if I had 25 marbles and I pulled five out of the 25 and I left the 20. So the idea here is taking some and leaving others behind. That's just what it means in the Greek. That's the definition. And in ek legomai, you can hear the ek, can't you? Ek, just like we hear ek in ekklesia, which means called out ones. It's, it's where we get the word exit sign as well. Most of evangelicalism disagrees with us here. And they cry that that's not fair. Somehow they love the God who breathed the universe into existence. But when God ascends his throne, his throne and God acts as God, calling out and elect people from the dead, why then he's unfair. Fleshly man hates this doctrine. But so many professing Christians do as well. They'll allow God some control, but not total control. They'll say, that part was mine. I made that decision. Now, Romans 8, 8 differs. It says man is not willing and not able to please God using the strongest language in the Greek for not able, not willing, ooh, dunamai. So if unbelievers are not able and they're not willing to please God and coming to faith in Christ pleases God, then they don't have the spiritual capacity to choose God. But just think of this. The whole human race is marching in lockstep on its way to hell. But God, out of His grace and mercy and love, chooses to elect a people out of that mass to be in Christ Jesus simply by His own choosing, calling out a church, calling out His church, calling out His bride. Is God wrong for doing that? Brothers and sisters, this has to be one of the most pride-crushing verses in Scripture when we realize we contributed nothing to this election. Just as we contributed nothing to being born Physically, we contributed nothing to be born, being born phys- spiritually. We should not be arrogant. We should not be rebellious. But rejoice and rest in His perfect plan and rest in His perfect timing. Knowing that our salvation was conceived in eternity past, before we were born and before the foundation of the world. 
Now we come to our third point, the purpose of the Father's choice. This is verse 4b, 5a. Look at the second half of the verse to, properly, uh, to help us properly define the condition that, of those who are called out. And the condition is this, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. In other words, those He has elected are not holy and blameless before Him, just like the rest of mankind, and are in need of being made holy and blameless. Thus, this election is to holiness. And the same word used for holy is translated saints in verse 1, marking us as belonging to God and blameless not to the world, but blameless before Him. I love what Charles Hodge said. He said, It is evident that election does not carry man halfway only. It carries him all the way. It does not merely bring him to conversion. It brings him to perfection. As Paul states, holy and blameless, this is the purpose of election. But this is also the very evidence of election. Because only the elect will live lives that are holy and blameless. Why? Because we're in the process of being conformed to the image of His Son. And just as Christ offered Himself morally and spiritually without blemish to God, we will be presented morally and spiritually without blemish before God. In the words of Ephesians, holy and blameless. If you truly want to be in the will of God, which should be the heart desire of every blood-bought believer, let us start today. Strive to live holy lives set apart from this crumbling world to be like Christ. Now, point four, the method of the Father's choice. Verse five begins by predestinating or predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. I have to agree with many of the commentators that the word love at the end of verse 4, properly, I think, applies to verse 5. Because the love, applying it to being blameless and holy, it better applies to, in love He predestined us to adoption. And that's how the ESV reads, and many translations read, in love He predestined us. This is a most humbling doctrine, predestination just as election is. The word predestined emphasizes the truth already confirmed in the word chosen from verse 4. Yet it indicates a destiny to be arrived at that's been preordained. And what I like, I like the word pre-encircled. So God has preordained or He has pre-encircled His chosen ones. For what end? To be adopted. We have seen previously that we're chosen to be holy and blameless. And now we are also predestined to be adopted. Adopted into the family of God. Ranked Gentiles. Now called sons of God. Joe Beakey wrote that the spiritual adoption is the excellency and the apex of God's salvation. And that's no overstatement. Going from being a child of the devil to being a son of God from being a child of wrath to being an object of God's favor and going from being under condemnation to being an heir whose inheritance exceeds the riches of a thousand kings. In the Roman world under Roman law, when a child was adopted, they were legally given the name of their new family along with all the legal rights. 
of a natural born child. They received a new name along with the privileges of that family, including full inheritance rights. Positionally, their whole world would be transformed from a life of no identity and no prospects and no hope to a life of new identity, new prospects, and new hope. But this adoption goes further. This adoption goes further than justification. Why? Because this is the judge standing up out of his throne, coming down to us and wrapping his arms around us and saying, come home with me as a son and inherit all that is mine. So we are pitied, we are protected, and we are taken care of by, our, by God our Father. But we must remember this adoption comes only through the Son, for we are united with Christ, and it is His name that is put on us. As the verse indicates, predestining us or predestinating us, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. It is only when we receive the Spirit of the Son that we can experience this preordained sonship. And this is what Christ meant when He said in John's Gospel, no one can come to the Father except through Me. What did He mean? He meant you must be in Christ. You must be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is a Trinitarian adoption determined, as we've seen in the council of the Godhead in eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit acting in perfect unity in the Trinity, electing a people, redeeming a people, and calling a people. The unity of the Godhead. This is so critical to our doctrine of the, of the Trinity, the doctrine of our salvation. The same people the Father elects are the same people that the Son redeems at the cross. And the same people that the Son redeems at the cross are the same people that the Spirit calls irresistibly to Himself. There is unity in everything in the Godhead, not chaos. The Trinity is never in disunity. When it comes to our election, our predestination, our adoption, they work in perfect unison. Not one group that is elected by the Father. Then another group that's a universal group of all humanity that the Son dies for. And then yet another group that the Holy Spirit has to get permission from first for, the him, for them to save them. That is a soteriological train wreck of a doctrine. And that is why synergists are so lost here in Ephesians 1. A synergist believes that salvation is man and God working together. That is the opposite of what these verses are saying. Which couldn't be more monergist, meaning it is all of God. Each one of us who are elect coming to true faith is due to the grand purpose of the mighty work of a triune God. To elect, to redeem, and to call us to sonship. Do you treasure your adoption? I ask you. Do you treasure it? This adopting grace is a gift of the triune God. Do you share John's sense of awe and gratitude when he declared in 1 John, see how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. And we are. 
As children of God, we join many others that are adopted, and they are our true family with our Heavenly Father who cares for us. You know, the story of a boat in a storm, it's a, it's a true story. Everyone on the boat was frantic in the storm. And there was a little boy, he sat so calm. And this one man, he was frantic and had to ask the boy, why are you so calm? And the boy said, well, my father is the captain and he will take care of me. Is that your attitude as an adopted child with a childlike disposition of total trust in your father in heaven? Samuel Willard, another Puritan, says, be comforting of yourselves with the thoughts of your adoption. Draw your comforts at this tap. Fetch your consolations from this relation. Be therefore upon chewing upon the precious privileges of it and make them your rejoicing. Let this joy dispel the midst of every sorrow and clear up your souls in the midst of all troubles and difficulties as you await heavenly glory where you will live out your perfect adoption by forever communing with the triune God. There you will dwell at the fountain and swim forever in those bankless and bottomless oceans of glory. I love that. And that leads us to the fifth point. The reason for the Father's choice in verses 5 and 6 is according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. The second half of verse 5 and the first half of verse 6 are arguably some of the most loaded verses in Scripture. Why? Because it not only explains why us, Lord? Why were we chosen? Why were we predestined before time? But it also answers, why do we even exist? Why do we even draw breath? The only answer, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's it. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. This speaks of the Father's divine purpose and sovereign love over all things, good and bad, that happen in our lives. Not only to answer why the blessings of grace that we've been graced with in the heavenlies, but in tribulation, this is the answer. Why is there evil? Why is there sin? The only answer. It's all according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. We hear a lot about the free will of man. This is all about the free will of God. That's all you see in Scripture is the will of God. So are you saying that God is the author of sin? No. But He uses sin according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. If you truly believe in the sovereignty of God, you must believe that God does not just allow evil in the world, but He ordains it. If someone asked, did God ordain those people to die in Hurricane Ian? The answer is yes. If God is sovereign, the answer is always yes. To believe anything else is unthinkable. You don't even want to go there. To believe that God does not control and ordain sin and death is to believe in a God who is out of control. And to believe that God is out of control in the world is to cast doubt on everything, including your salvation. Everything you have hope, put your hope into, 
And if death from a hurricane is out of the hands of an almighty God, how secure is your salvation? There may be nothing more terrifying than that. That the God who breathed the galaxies in existence, that knows the beginning from the end because he decreed it, is not actually in control of all things. Even the most heinous evil ever committed against the most innocent. Now, what was the greatest crime in the history of the world against the most innocent? The greatest injustice ever committed, the greatest blasphemy against God ever committed, the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God at the hands of sinful men. What does Acts 4 say? For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to occur. And why did God predestine this greatest crime of all time for the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace? Our adoption into the family of God is not for our glory, but it is, as all things are, for the glory of God alone. Now we come to our final phrase in verse 6, which modifies the preceding word grace. Grace of God. It reads grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved, which also could be translated grace with which he has generously blessed us in Christ. In the beloved clearly being defined as the beloved one in whom the Father is well pleased. We see this in Colossians 1, similarly describing the Father's love of Christ. It reads, Who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. I love that. The Son of His love. So the beloved and the Son of His love, of course, are both referring to Jesus Christ. And since the Son of God bled and suffered for our sins by means of His death, He has earned every spiritual blessing for us and thereby wants us to be blessed by this grace of election, of predestination, and of adoption in love. And since the Father loves the Son, who was perfectly obedient to the Father to earn these spiritual blessings... For the sake of the Father, it makes sense the Father would grant these blessings to us. Romans 8 captures this so well. He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice in all these scriptures that speak of the riches of election, predestination, and adoption, it is always the Father through the Son, in the Beloved, meaning with the Son. So as we began in verse 3, with these amazing blessings with which He has blessed us, verse 6 comes full circle back to again remind us of these blessings that have come to us from the Father in light of the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul began in verse 3 with a doxology as he led us into the grand truths of the Scripture, Scripture that reveals the majesty of an active God that has shown mercy 
to an elect people by predestining them to adoption as sons of God. And then he points us back to this merciful God saying, this is for your glory. We are elected for your glory. We are predestined for your glory. We are adopted for your glory. You know, it's as if he's walking amongst these deeply rooted giant redwoods of our faith, election, predestination, and adoption. And naturally, he can't help but keep his eyes from looking heavenward. For the believer, we should be melted in humility and gratitude. For the unbeliever, these truths should be absolutely terrifying. This means you're outside his will, outside his grace, in opposition to the sovereign God. For how can you resist his power? You have an immortal enemy. And so this changes everything for the unbeliever. Your life is finished. You're a dead man, just as Isaiah said. Yet this immortal, all-powerful, sovereign God is offering you terms of peace through His Son. Submit to His sovereignty. Repent of your sins right now before this mighty and awesome God and put all your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we close this section of Scripture. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed with these truths, these grand doctrines of our faith that we hold on to, that we're humbled by. We are shattered by them, Lord, that we are elected, we are chosen out of this world. We are predestined from before time began. We are adopted Lord, this is an amazing set of, section of Scripture and we give you all the glory the, to the praise of your grace, the glory of your grace. We give you all the glory, Lord, for this. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's finish with... Uh, we hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.